Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we have a lot to discuss. Uh, First, we're going to look at whether Democrats in Congress might be able to salvage something from President Biden's Build Back Better agenda, Uh, later this summer. Uh, Time is certainly running short for them. And then next, we'll look at the mixed messages on the economic front. There are some signs that point to a recession, and there are other signs that send a more comforting signal. So we'll look into that. And finally, uh, we'll uh, consider a new Concord Coalition issue brief on the generational burden of the national debt, which is kind of the sum and substance of what the Concord Coalition is all about. So joining me for their economic and budgetary insights are Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. Tori and Steve, welcome back to Facing the Future. Let's get to the legislative agenda first, because there seems to be uh, some life in in, uh, Congress. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the legislative front, Tori, you... uh, you wrote some notes about reconciliation rising from the dead. Where, uh, <laughs> how is that process going? Once again, Democrats are going to make another uh, hail mary pass at uh, reviving elements of President Biden's Build Back Better agenda. If you remember, there was a reconciliation bill that passed the the House uh, several months ago and just sort of stalled out when Senators Manchin and Cinema in the Senate, two Democrats who helped comprise the, the 50 seat majority for the Democrats uh, in the Senate said, we don't like that bill. And there have been several attempts since then to revive it only to be met by resistance from those two senators. But it looks like uh, now that uh, the uh, sort of red flashing blinking light on reconciliation is on overdrive and that reconciliation bill may may soon die. Uh, they're they're trying one more time, uh, sort of in a last bid chance to get something across the line uh, before the November midterm elections. Let me just uh, go back to this reconciliation thing because it, it drives the timing. So before we get into the substance of what they're talking about, they have this magic thing, this this magic chalice of mm-hmm. reconciliation. The purpose of which is to get something through the Senate without uh, a a filibuster. So the Democrats can do that with 50 votes and Vice President Harris is uh, tipping the uh, the the, the tie breaking vote. So that assumes that all 50 need to stick together. And that means that they have to get Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, Kirsten Sinema. And but but the timing of this reconciliation bill is crucial because this magic chalice turns into a pumpkin at some point. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. It turns into a pumpkin on September 30th when the current fiscal federal fiscal year ends. So that's the uh, the urgency is you got to get something done now or your your opportunity may uh, pass now. What are what are they? Uh, 
what are they trying to put together here? What, what are the what are the policy planks? Right. So first, I think it's important to point out that there isn't a bill right now, um, but they are elements of a bill. Uh, right now, we know that uh, they have agreement among Democrats on a prescription drug price package that would allow Medicare to negotiate directly with drug manufacturers on the price of what they call high expenditure prescription drugs in Medicare Part B and in Medicare Part D. Uh, we also know that they have agreement on higher taxes on investment income from pass-through entities to wealthy individuals. And what I mean by pass-through entities, these are business entities that aren't corporations, things like uh, S-corps, um, uh, propri- sole proprietorships, partnerships, et cetera. So they've, they've got an agreement on, on higher taxes uh, from income from those types of entities that pass through to the individual shareholders, and they would levy that, that, that tax on, on higher uh, high net wealth or, or wealthier individuals. There may be um, some energy uh, tax provision, climate change provisions in that package, but we haven't seen any kind of details or any kind of uh, announcement of an agreement, even on a framework for provisions there. And there may be something on extending the expanded uh, Affordable Care Act uh, subsidies that were in the Biden administration's uh, COVID relief package from March of 2021. So we're, we're waiting to see uh, what else might be in this package. But right now they've nailed down two provisions. So it looks like all of the uh, some of the better known big provisions like, oh, universal child care, uh, universal pre-K um, uh, family and uh, family leave, medical leave, some of those big ticket items are no longer on the table. Is that correct? At least they're not being discussed out, out loud. Um, I think, uh, for example, Joe Manchin supports uh, some of the uh, uh, provisions regarding universal pre-K, uh, but he would like to discuss that in a bipartisan basis and use the payroll tax and expansion of the payroll tax as a way to pay for that. And of course, you can't do that in reconciliation. And he also wants to work on a bipartisan basis for achieving that type of solution. So I wouldn't necessarily say that that type of provision is dead. It's just probably not going to go in this vehicle, in this reconciliation bill. We might see it in some future legislation. What are the parameters of the fiscal consequences, either the savings or new programs. And as you said, there is no bill right now. So there's, no, there's right, nothing right, to score. Right. So we can't say, you know, what they're considering is going to do X because we don't really know. But they have come out with a, a score on the prescription drug relief, and there might be some estimates on some of the other provisions. I mean, they, they sort of have a goal in mind, I think. Right, right. So the prescription drug package, as it exists right now, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office said it would save about $288 billion over 10 years. 
Um, the higher taxes on investment income to higher net worth individuals. We don't have a score on that yet, but there are economists who say that the new tax would raise approximately $200 billion over 10 years. Um, I don't think the they the Democrats have a specific fiscal target that they're trying to hit, but I do know that Senator Manchin has stipulated that he wants at least half of the savings created by a reconciliation bill to go to deficit reduction, which means don't spend it. <laughs> so on the on the on the big picture, if they do anything, it's likely to have a deficit reduction score or Manchin wouldn't vote for it. Absolutely. I think whatever reconciliation bill the Democrats produce and the president signs, there will be a, a component of it. Uh, that reduces the deficit over over 10 years. Yes. Um, you mentioned there are a couple of uh, little things, and I, I want to maybe get Steve's input on this pass-through tax and some of the complications, but I tee that up so he can think about it while I ask Tori another question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to just blindside Steve. Um, uh, but the uh, you know you mentioned extending th- some ACA subsidies. Um, the, that's the so-called Obamacare provisions. And during the pandemic, there were enhancements, so people who suddenly lost their jobs and lost their health insurance were able to buy into or get uh, subsidized insurance premiums to keep healthcare from um, the ACA. Uh, exchanges, private healthcare insurance exchanges. So that enhancement, as I understand it, is scheduled to expire in by the end of the year. And um, what are some of the? And this is this is a really crucial uh, point about whether you extend them or if you do extend them, how do you pay for that? Is that part of this package? What are they going to do? Um, what are what are the consequences there just in terms of people insured and what it might cost to extend what current law is? Right. So let, let me back up a, a second. And first, let's state that everybody right now is worried about recession, right? The, the Federal Reserve is worried about inflation and battling inflation at a level that would cause a recession. Um, stock markets worried about recession. Uh, uh, people are worried about recession. Recessions generally lead to greater number of uninsured Americans because the unemployed often lose their health insurance when they lose their job. Now go back to COVID. When COVID first started, we had a lot of people that lost their jobs right away. Um, And the Biden administration sought to minimize the number of uninsured during COVID because obviously it was a global health pandemic. So they want people to have health insurance. So if they got COVID, they could go get medical care and have it covered. Um, So they passed legislation in March of 2021 uh, that did a lot of things that would provide more health coverage for individuals. For example, they expanded the eligibility for Medicaid, and they also made health insurance more affordable to people through the Obamacare marketplace exchanges. They fully subsidized premiums for low-income people. They increased premium subsidies for all income levels. And then for the first time, they expanded the eligibility of those premium subsidies to people with a little bit higher income. And all of those provisions were temporary. And they're, as you said, they're set to expire at the end of this calendar year. 
Uh, and I think one of the reasons why they did that is because it was really expensive. Um, uh, now, according to, uh, we're, we're still sort of waiting to figure out how much it would cost to extend those subsidies. There are estimates all over the place because it turns out that the initial estimate that the Congressional Budget Office provided with the legislation that expanded these subsidies was really underestimated. Um, so they're having to go back and, and, and re-estimate and figure out uh, how much it's going to cost. But I think, as you say, it's important to ask, okay, what happens if we don't extend these subsidies? And the short answer is that a lot of people will no longer be able to afford health insurance and would drop it. Uh, those people that get health insurance through the Obamacare exchanges. And I just want to point out, bear in mind, as we talk about this, COVID isn't over, right? The, there are two new variants uh, that are circulating and spread, spreading rapidly here in the United States. Cases are rising. Um, if you take a look at, at some of the data, uh, the Urban Institute says that those expanded subsidies helped add 2.5 million people to the health exchanges. Uh, uh, last year, uh, failure to extend those uh, subsidies would fall hard on the nearly 5 million people who have income below 150% of the federal poverty level. Now, I know that sounds like a weird number. What is 150% of the, of the poverty level? 150 sounds like a big number. Well, you know, poverty level is, is determined by family size. So let me give you just one data point. A 27-year-old, so a single person, a 27-year-old, um, you know, 100% of the 150% of the poverty level is about $19,000. Okay, so somebody making about $19,000, um, you know, they'd lose their subsidy uh, in the Obamacare exchanges, and their annual premium for health insurance would go from zero to $800. Okay, that's big for somebody who's only earning $19,000 a year. So, uh, I think it's important to realize that uh, that. COVID isn't over. <laughs> People still need health insurance and access to, to quality health care. Um, and that the people that are most likely to be affected by not extending these subsidies are the people that can least afford it. Um, and so one of the, uh, you know, one of the issues is whether they change it to try to make it more targeted, I guess, uh, make the extension more targeted. Um, you know, uh, so that the subsidies would go be directed at the people that uh, needed them most, I guess. Well, I guess I would argue that if you don't have health insurance, then you need it, right? I, 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 I know that 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 Senator Manchin has said that he wants to target the the subsidies a, a little bit better, um, but. Even so, you know, people that are that are, you know, the, the subsidies go up as high as people who are earning four hundred percent of the poverty level, you know. But four hundred percent of the poverty level um, isn't a heck of a lot of money when you've got a family that's, you know, a mom and a dad and two or three kids. Um, so, you know, I, I and I, <laughs> I would argue again that it's important for people to have health insurance, especially in the middle of a global pandemic that uh, shows no signs of abating. It's also uh, 
quite uh, quite awkward to have healthcare subsidies expire during an election season. I wanted to get back to the one of the other things that uh, that you mentioned, which was the a, a new tax. They refer to it as closing a loophole on investment uh, income through these pass-through entities that you talked about. And boy, this does get a little bit weedy, but I just wanted to, to, to get Steve's take on incentives here, because one of the things that can happen when you, you, you change the taxation of certain things is you, you sort of you know, punch the, uh, the, the pillow or the, you know, in one point and it just balloons out at another point. So I'm squeeze the balloon. Exactly. I'm just wondering, would people shift income or how would this work uh, in, in practice rather than in theory? In two minutes. <laughs> so, so there certainly is some balloon pushing uh, potential going on here. So as folks may remember, in 2017, Congress cut the top corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%. So if you're a C-Corp, if you, if you <clears throat> file taxes under the corporate income tax code, your top rate went from 35% to 21%. Now, not every business is a corporation or a C-corporation. They, as Tori mentioned earlier, there are other types of businesses, the self-employed, partnerships, what are called limited liability corporations, and S-corporations. Those business entities file taxes as individuals. So in other words, they file under the individual income tax code. And the individual top rate was reduced from 39.6 to 37%. Uh, but that will expire at the end of 2025 and go back up to 39.6%. Um, now, obviously, when you have a disparity between the tax rates, between 21% for C-Corps and 36, uh, 37% for you know, non-C-Corporations, you have a potential for businesses to say, well, gee, do I want to pay 21 or do I want to pay 37? And so they have an incentive to uh, change their business, to, to simply incorporate and, and file under the lower tax rate. And we saw a lot of that happen back in 1986. It was, of course, in the opposite direction because the individual rate was lower than the corporate rate. So in order to avoid that in 2017, Congress passed a special tax deduction for businesses, pass-through businesses, uh, and they allow them to deduct 20% of their, their business income. So instead of paying 37% on 100% of their business income, they pay 37% on 80% of their income. So it, it creates partial parity with the corporate rate. And of course, what the new proposal would do uh, is to impose what is now a 3.8% tax on investment income. It would apply that tax to business income. Now, if you did that, the 3.8% would apply to the 37% minus the 20% deduction, but in 2025, the 20% deduction goes away. So, and the top rate goes from 37 up to 39.6. So basically, you know, in 2025, you're going to have a new top rate of 39.6%, no 20% business deduction, and you're going to have the new investment tax. So you now have a top rate of well over 40%. You throw in state income taxes and it's even higher. So the question becomes, do these pass-through business entities say, well, do I pay the 21% corporate rate, which by the way is permanent, uh, or do I pay this new 40% plus tax? Uh, and so, you know, not every business is going to switch. And so there will be some businesses paying the higher taxes. 
but it's a, an educated guess as to how many businesses would switch over time, given the huge differential in tax treatment between C-Corps and non-C-Corps. Well, um, we're going to have to leave it there for this segment. We've got a lot of uh, legislative proposals up in the air, but I guess the important thing is that they're going to give another shot at it here and see if they can get a major bill passed. Uh, and from our perspective, it is a good thing that they are now explicitly aiming for a deficit reduction uh, bill and looking for pay-fors, and we'll have to keep our eye on whether there's legitimacy in these things and double counting or whatever and what, what the details look like. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and uh, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman, and Concord's Chief Economist, Steve Robinson, uh, have been joining me for this discussion of uh, uh, possible legislation. We'll be right back after these short messages when we'll be talking about the state of the economy. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. And in this segment, we're going to talk about the mixed signals on the U.S. economy. Nobody seems to know what's going on, but nevertheless, we're going to plunge in and <laughs> try to give, give you our assessment of uh, what's happening. I guess there are a couple of big stories. I mean, uh, the, the one that gets a lot of attention is inflation because it's right in your face every time you go shopping or go to the gas station. And uh, we got the latest inflation numbers to discuss. Uh, they were even even uh, worse than expected with the inflation going up. And then the other question, big question hanging over the economy is whether or not we're headed towards a recession. There are mixed signals on that, strong jobs numbers, but uh, uh, you know, uh, otherwise, there are some other signals signaling a, uh, a slowdown. So we'll we'll get into that, too, and why the Fed is really in the middle of, uh, of both both issues, because in order to cool inflation, which they need to do, they may need to step on the brake so fast that it causes a recession. So uh, Joe Biden's in the hot seat, but uh, but so is Jay Powell. So, Steve, let's get started on the inflation numbers. We had uh a new report coming out that showed inflation growing at 9.1 over the past year, higher than the last one, which everybody said, oh, well, this is the peak uh, at 8.6 from the, the prior month. So what's going on? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> uh, um, you, you know, the, the narrative keeps changing. You know, two years ago, there was no inflation. And then a year ago, it's uh, transitory inflation. And a month ago, it's 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 peak inflation, and this month it's like, whoops, we're not quite sure. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a real dilemma. I don't I don't envy the the Fed. Um, you know, the the inflation numbers have been creeping up since uh, this past fall, and uh, everybody was not everybody, but a, a lot of people were expecting uh, this month's number to to at least level off and maybe come down. And in fact, uh, it, it, it continued to go up. We're, we're at 9.1% year over year inflation. And so, you know, the, that puts the onus on the federal reserve to, uh, to try to do something. And unfortunately the only tool in their toolbox is to raise interest rates. And so, you know, the expectation now is, you know, (laughs) Again, a month ago, they were debating, well, you know, they just raised the, the uh, Fed funds rate by three quarters of a, of a percent or 75 basis points. 
And there was a little bit of chatter saying, well, you know, this next time, maybe they'll only do a half a percent because they're, they're worried about, you know, the economy. And of course, the jobs numbers came in last week at, at a strong, you know, unemployment still three and a half or 3.6 percent. There were 370,000 new jobs. So they were saying, well, maybe they'll only uh, go up a half a half a half of a percent, 50 basis points. And of course, when the inflation number came out this morning, you know, some of the chatter as well, maybe they need to go a full percentage point, 100 basis points next time. So, you know, it's is a lot of a lot of doubt out there in terms of what direction the economy is headed. You know, is is the labor market strong enough to, to carry us through or is, you know, inflation going to going to tank us because the Fed's going to be pushed to raising interest rates? Tori, is uh, is this the time when inflation has really peaked? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard when you look at the data because there's two ways of looking at the inflation data. You can look at the year over year numbers and you can look at the month over month numbers. And when you talk about top line inflation, both numbers are up year over year plus month over month. So at the top line, inflation is, is still accelerating. But when you look at the core inflation number, which means you extract out the very volatile food, food and energy uh, sectors, you know, uh, year over year that the trend has been down for the last couple of months. It's only 5.9% year over year, but the month over month number jumped up a little bit. Again, last month, it was a six tenths of a point increase. This month was a seven tenths of a point increase. So, you know, there's some concern there that core inflation um, is, is, is not slowing. And that's really what uh, I think economists in the Federal Reserve are, are looking at is, can they get core inflation down? Um, you know, lo- looking at these numbers, uh, from 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 my perspective, I think this is a growing body of evidence, given what we've seen the Federal Reserve do over the last couple of months with respect to raising interest rates and raising them re- relatively aggressively. I think the evidence is growing uh, that that this is a supply side problem, and that there's no amount of fiscal or monetary policy that's going to solve this problem. You know, between the energy crisis that we have, whether here, you know, in the in the United States, or you know, our domestic production isn't what it used to be uh, uh, for you know a variety of reasons, but you know oil and gas companies are not willing to make the investments that they need to bring more production online uh, because they don't know if there's going to be a demand for those 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 products and services a, a decade from now. I, you know I, I think that's a rational decision. But then you've got the the energy supply shocks uh, coming from the the war in Ukraine, and I still think we've got COVID supply chain issues. You know COVID is not done with us. Um, we've got cases rising everywhere. Um, and I think that uh, there's no amount of fiscal policy that's going to solve this. And I, I'm starting to believe that there's no amount of, of, of monetary policy that's going to solve. It's kind of like pushing on a string, right? Uh, when you've got a, you know, the f- f- uh, fiscal and, and monetary policy are great at solving demand side problems, but the, I'm starting to believe more and more every day that this is a supply side problem. Well, there are food shortages from the war in Ukraine also. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's part of it as well. And the inflation numbers are across the board. I mean, it's just about everything. So that's a that's another problem uh, that economists worry about when they're it's one or two uh, issues. At first, we were thinking, well, it was just pandemic related stuff. But that's certainly we're, we're way beyond that point now. And yeah. As you say, the supply issues, supply chain issues haven't been resolved. Right. But let's look at the top. The top line number for inflation this month was 9.1% year over year. The core inflation number, when you subtract out the volatile food and energy, is 59 That's a big delta. Okay. Yeah. That's and we should, we should say the Fed's goal is 2%. So Right, right, right. So there's still a long way to go. 
Um, but more and more and more, I'm starting to believe this is a supply side problem and we're just going to have to ride it out and people are going to have to get vaccinated and, <laughs> and socially distance and wear their masks till we can get rid of COVID. Steve, the Fed's dilemma. Uh, you raised that before, but it just uh, strikes me that we have these problems and the Fed has no good options here. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so I, I actually this past week had been looking at um, the historical data uh, comparing interest rates, inflation rates, unemployment rates, and looking what those relationships have been historically. Now, you know, there's always a danger in looking in the rearview mirror. Uh, but, you know, if, if past is prologue, typically inflation peaks and begins coming down once the Fed has raised interest rates roughly equal with the inflation rate. In other words, right now, the 10-year uh, the uh, government bond interest rate is about 3%. Well, if inflation is running at 8%, that means people are losing 5% in real terms. In other words, inflation is eroding the value of their money beyond the interest that they're earning. And so historically, you know, inflation has you know, the Fed has contained inflation by essentially pushing interest rates up. And, and the, the lever that the Fed controls is the short term, what's called the federal funds rate, which is the interest rate that banks lend money to each other on the overnight market. And the Fed is able to control that interest rate through a combination of adjusting its uh, reserves, buying and selling government securities and mortgage-backed securities, and then, of course, since 2008, they've developed a new tool, which is paying interest on reserves. And of course, they can keep the interest um, rate high and therefore reduce the supply of reserves to the banks. But again, that means that, that the Fed has to raise interest rates. And typically, the Fed funds rate has, you know, the Fed has pushed the Fed funds rate up to equal the long-term bond rate. And the long-term bond rate has generally risen to equal the inflation rate. Now, all of the things being the same, that implies a 10-year bond rate and a Fed funds rate of 8%, which would be equal to 9% equal to the inflation rate. Now, obviously, once they start raising those rates, hopefully inflation will come down and those two rates will meet in the middle somewhere. Uh, so you don't necessarily have to have interest rates of you know 9% in order to contain inflation, but they have to be approaching the inflation rate. They're rising as inflation is falling. And again, I mean, that's sort of been the historical pattern. So that suggests that given where we are now with 3% interest rates uh, and 9% inflation, we have a ways to go. The Fed is really going to have to step on the brakes. And, you know, they, they, you know they're not there yet. And so, uh, you know, how quickly... Yeah, but I think there's a worry of miscalculating there, right? I mean, the, the, the question, you know, is... Can the Fed do anything about this? This if this is truly a supply shock, you know, there's a concern that the Fed, you know, really steps on the accelerator and instead of a 75 basis point increase at the end of the month, they do 100 basis points, but then it has no impact on inflation and you know the the actions by the Federal Ver Federal Reserve shove us into recession with no impact on inflation and suddenly we've got stagflation. Yeah, no, that, that obviously is the danger because the, the Fed only has one tool in its toolbox, and that is interest rates. And, you know, they, you know, interest rates can affect both supply and demand 
but but they affect it in the wrong way when they're trying to fight inflation. In other words, mm -hmm. if you're trying to increase supply, you want people to well. But again, I mean, so it's 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 a it's a double-edged sword because you know part of as Troy mentioned earlier, part of the um, the, the uh, intuition of businesses is to say, you know, what is the market going to do next year or the year late or year after? And if they know prices are coming down, they're better able to plan on, on what it is they want to do and, and plan on what prices are going to be. So it's, it's more the uncertainty element. And the question is, how much does uncertainty affect business planning and, and does that, does that, is that a bigger drag on the economy, the uncertainty of what prices are going to be, as opposed to what prices are going to be, or, or what prices actually are currently? Um, well, Steve, so we're going to have to, uh, <laughs> we're going to have to leave our listeners pondering that for another time, because we're going to have to wrap up this segment. Uh, I'm your host, Bob Bixby. You're listening to Facing the Future, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And in this segment, we're going to talk to Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson, who has authored a new issue brief for us entitled Passing the Buck, How the National Debt Burdens Future Generations. And uh, as the name implies, the uh, paper looks at how borrowing now to uh, uh, spend current benefits and cut taxes uh, creating debt can uh, can create burdens down the road for future generations. Uh, and joining us to discuss the issue brief is Concord Coalition Communications Director of Harris. Uh, so, Steve, let's uh, let's get into it. Um, you know, uh, a paper on the burdens of the national debt on future generations kind of seems like, well, of course, from the Concord Coalition. So. Why, after 30 years in our existence, did you uh, choose to write a paper on this subject at this time? And the answer wasn't was, I just asked you to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, there, you know I, I've obviously been around these issues on Capitol Hill for 30 plus years. And there's, there's this sort of commonsensical notion that most people have that, that, that borrowing money today is, is great because you get to buy things that you couldn't otherwise afford because you're borrowing money. But then there's this realization, just like when you run up your credit card, at some point, uh, you know, maybe I've got to pay this back. And so what I wanted to do was to say, well, you know, businesses and individuals and households are a little different than the federal government. And so, you know, the question is, does the national debt really matter? And if so, how, how much does it matter? And so, you know, I wrote this paper basically with an open mind to say, you know, can I use economic theory and economic models and demonstrate whether the debt matters and, and how it matters and, and how much it matters? And so that's essentially what I, what I attempted to do. Oh. So Steve, as uh, somebody who does not have, uh, you know, an academic background in, um, in economics or uh, federal fiscal policy, I actually found your paper very, very interesting. Um, and I wonder if you talk about uh, the main findings, if you can boil that down for the layperson like me. And also, you used a, a new approach, right, to get to your conclusion. Can you can you describe that? Yeah. So historically, people have viewed the national debt in sort of two ways. the The idea is that well, when the government borrows money, 
that means there's less money for everybody else to use. And so there's this notion of, of crowding out. And in the financial markets, if, if there's not enough available uh, money savings available to, to borrow, you get higher interest rates. And so for years, economists have tried to say, well, you know, what is the effect of crowding out? And from a theoretical perspective, they, people will say, well, you know, if the economy is in a recession, the government can borrow money and spend, and that's actually a good thing, and that'll help the economy. Uh, it's only if the economy is overheating, if you know, the economy is fully employed and you know, there's, a, there's a shortage of workers and resources, then the government borrows, and that's going to be a bad thing, that's going to crowd out. And so there's these competing theories that suggest, well, government borrowing might be good, it might be bad. Um, and so when economists have, have you know, looked at this empirically, they've had a hard time finding a significant effect on interest rates and crowding out. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe there's another angle. And of course, the other argument is, well, you know, we borrow money now, and that means we're just going to have to raise taxes and pay it all back. And so we're deferring the taxes and taxes impose a burden because they raise the price of savings and employment. And clearly there's a burden there. So what we're doing is we're just shifting the burden. Well, then along came the argument and that is, well, well wait a minute, we don't have to raise taxes and pay it back. What if we just roll the debt over and, and never pay it back? We'll just refinance it. you know. And so nobody has to pay higher taxes to pay the money back. And so when you, when you go through these arguments, you sort of say, well, it's not entirely clear how government borrowing would affect the economy. And so I took a slightly different approach, and, and that is um, referred to in the economic literature as the life cycle permanent income hypothesis. And essentially, that's a fancy way for saying that, you know, people would like to retire at some point in the future. And in order to retire, you have to save while you're working. And so, you know, when you save, you're giving up money, current money, to buy financial assets so that when you retire, you can live off those financial assets, the interest, the dividends, the capital gains. But technically, what you're living off of, for, for, the, for, the, for the most part, is that you're selling those financial assets to younger investors. In other words, the way to think about it is when you're young, you save and invest, and when you're old, you basically sell off your, your corporate bonds and you know, corporate stock and government bonds, uh, and, and who you sell them to are, are other younger workers who are saving. And so it essentially becomes a transfer through the financial markets from the young to the old, from workers to non-workers or, or retirees. And so you know, when you look at it from that perspective, it raises the question, well, what role does government debt play? Well, I mean, government debt is a financial asset. If, if you buy a government bond, you expect the government to pay you off, pay, pay it off. Now, the government could pay it off by raising your taxes, or the government could pay it off by borrowing money from somebody else and giving you the money. Well, so from your perspective, what matters is when you get paid off, did the government raise your taxes and give it back to you and say, here's your money back, in which case it had no effect on your, you know, your, your ability to support yourself in retirement. Uh, because you you gave the money up and and or you got the money by paying higher taxes. So um, when you think about the fact that if the government doesn't pay off the debt, it becomes part of household or, or individual net worth. And so essentially, what I tried to do was to say, well, assuming the government borrows and rolls it over indefinitely, so that the debt is essentially passed from one generation to the next generation, 
how does that affect individual savings and what effect does that have on the rest of the economy? And what'd you find? <laughs> Glad you asked. <laughs> so, yeah, so essentially I, I created a stylized model, a life cycle model in which, as I mentioned before, the young workers, the uh, young individuals work and save, and then they retire and they sell off their assets. And when you put that framework, the life cycle framework into what's called a neoclassical growth model, which says that the size of the economy depends on how many workers there are and how many hours they work and how much capital, how many buildings and plants and equipment and machinery and computers, all the physical infrastructure that exists to produce goods and services. And so when you put the national debt into that framework, you realize a couple of things. One, uh, who holds the national debt matters. In other words, the national debt is $30 trillion, but all of that is not held by the US public. Some of it's held by the Federal Reserve, some of it's held by foreign investors in the rest of the world, and some of it's held by government trust funds. And so you have to distinguish between those components of the debt in terms of who holds it. But for the portion that's held by individuals that affects their net wealth, the conclusion essentially is that every 10 percentage point increases in the debt held by the public. So if, if the debt held by the public has historically averaged about 25% of GDP, 25% of the economy, if that went from 25% to 35%, a 10 percentage point increase, what the model suggests is that future generations, their lifetime consumption will go down by 1%. That doesn't sound huge, but if the national debt were to continue to rise to 50% or 100%, now, now again, the national debt held by the public, so it's part of right. their portfolio, if that were to go to 100%, then basically what, that, what, uh, what the model suggests is that the capital stock of, of private wealth would go down by about 25%, total income would go down by about 15%, and lifetime consumption <clears throat> would go down by about 10%. So and that's, in other words, that's significant because yeah. so your two burdens basically are higher taxes in the future to pay the debt back. And if you look at, you know, the, the, the impact that you're just saying, less consumption over time, and that has a negative impact because look, when people consume, that's an economic stimulus. So there's the other impact on the economy. Am I reading that right? Yeah. I mean, that, that was sort of the purpose of doing this, this paper is to say, you know, people have the intuitive assumption that the national debt must have some impact. You know, unless the government borrows from people and transfers the money back to the same people and raises their taxes by the equal amount of, of the debt and the transfers, you know, the only way for debt to be neutral is for those transactions to all cancel out. But in a real economy where people are working and saving and retiring and you know, essentially the financial markets allow the debt to be transferred back and forth between the bondholders and the taxpayers and workers and retirees. When you realize that there's effects that vary by, um, you know, age and income and, and whether you're working or retiring, when you try to, to put all of that together, um, you know, that allows you to say, well, how does the debt, again, recognizing that you could just raise everybody's taxes and pay off the debt, and then you would be analyzing what is the effect of raising taxes. But that's a separate question. 
And essentially what I tried to do was to say, well, if we didn't raise taxes and we did roll over the debt from generation, one generation to the next, what is that effect? And essentially what this study does is it focuses on that central question, rolling the debt over, passing the buck from one generation to the next. And the bottom line basically is that, you know, people benefit today by borrowing money and spending it, just like running up your credit card is fun and it's great. You get to buy things you really can't afford. But when the bill comes due, somebody has to pay it. And if you don't pay it and you roll it over forever, it turns out that has an effect too. And again, as I pointed out, the the, the central conclusion is that 10 percentage points of extra debt held by the public is a 1% change or a 1% reduction in lifetime consumption for future generations. And again, when the debt gets big enough, those numbers become significant. You can check out that issue brief on our website, conqueredcoalition.org, and uh, that issue brief, Passing the Buck, um, How the National Debt Affects Future Generations, is uh, was written by Steve Robinson, who was our guest here in the uh, third segment today. Well, uh, Steve, that's a good place to, to wrap it up. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, and thank you for uh, writing that conclusion, because after 30 years of worrying about it, I'm glad to know that there's some <laughs> economic justification for it. <laughs> uh, thank you for joining me for this segment. Uh, this is your host, Bob Bixby. We'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. Facing the Future.